episode 24, here we are, recording, and uh, now, yeah, good, good, let's do a, yeah, everything seems to be working fine, let's do a vocal warm-up, as always, the vocal warm-up uh, is just um, closing your eyes and just screaming into the pillow, the first thing that pops into your mind. <laughs> Cool. Alright, that sounded good. You're warmed up, and of course, the second part of the warm-up is to uh, vigorously rub your own nipples for 45 minutes. Um, but I feel warmed up enough, so I can skip that part. Hello! Welcome back to Man It Is, the only true crime podcast on the internet where all the killers are real animals. I'm your host, James, and it is good to be back. Uh, thank you for joining us. It's been a great week. Um, I want to just start off and say a big old thank you to everybody who has listened and started listening to the show in the past month. The numbers are doing great. It's going gangbusters. The Twitter sphere is going wild. I'm trending in New York. No, I'm not. The second part of that was all a lie, but the first part is true. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and of course, Today, uh, we are talking about the 1916 Jersey Shore shark attacks, and I want you to get ready for this one. Strap in and strap on, folks, because this is by far, I think, the biggest story we've ever tackled. The script today is twice as long as a regular script, so uh, we're going to jump straight into it. Before we do, I would just like to remind you to hang around to the end of the episode because I have some exciting announcements to reveal. Uh, announcements that I low-key forgot to announce last week in the episode. So if you did listen to that episode and about 20 minutes in, I mentioned, oh, and I'll talk about that at the end of the episode, and then I abruptly ended the episode without mentioning that, uh, uh, you're not going crazy. I did do that. I'm a terrible podcaster. Yes, I'm a terrible podcaster. Um, but you know what? Most people are terrible podcasters. The best podcaster is a terrible podcaster. If you really look at it, uh, I'm not going to say anymore because um, Spotify will kick me off. I mean, I'm no Neil Diamond, but uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually not even close to Neil Diamond in popularity. Uh, Neil Diamond, by the way. Uh, his actual name, Nelson Sapphire. Is it worth stopping the show and re-recording that because of what I just said? Is it worth it? I'm going to say yes, but also no, I'm too lazy. So, the 1916 Jersey Shore shark attacks. We have mentioned this story once in the past. Um, when we talked about the Summer of the Shark, which of course happened in 2001, I alluded to this story um, in that the sensationalist news stories that happened um, during the 1916 Jersey Shore shark attacks, uh, they kind of mirrored what happened again nearly 100 years later in 2001. Of course, the 2001 uh, Summer of the Shark, as it became known, to me, the most interesting thing about that story, aside from the fact that it really wasn't a story and it was just the media lying to you again, as I say on this podcast and I stand by it, fake news, um, you know, but the most exciting, but not exciting, the most interesting part of that story to me is that the stories would have kept going on. The media would have kept sensationalizing and hyping up the fear if it weren't for a bigger news story uh, that came up. And I'll give you one chance to guess what that 2001 news story might have been. That's right. That's right. Uh, Spider-Man 1 stopped filming. No, I'm just kidding. It was 9-11. 
<sighs> of course it was 9-11. Anyway, this story that you're about to listen to does have some parallels to that story. So if you haven't listened to the, uh, the 2001 Summer of the Shark episode, I urge you to go back and listen to that after this and see what you can glean from that. Um, but for now, we're going to jump, we're going to dive into it because it's a, an aquatic themed episode today. We're going to dive right into the story. So as I like to always say, for some reason, strap in gentlemen, boys, girls, actually, no, no girls, no girls allowed. Boys only episode. Boys and non-binary people only. How about that? Yeah, I feel like we should team up for once. The boys and the non-binary people, yeah? Because I think women have had it too good for a while. <laughs> what a bad week to start saying that sort of shit on a podcast. That women have had it too good. This is not a political podcast. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bring that up. But um, um yeah, if you know a woman, uh, especially in America... Uh, I, don't know, I, don't know what do. I don't know what you should do for them. Do something nice. I don't know, fuck me. What am I talking about? This is a podcast about shark attacks. And I'm talking about Roe v. Wade. <laughs> fuck, maybe I should have re-recorded this. <sighs> oh well. If some mad uh, Twitter blogger um, picks this up, this up and uh, tries to hashtag cancel me, um, good, because as we've seen, uh, cancellation is probably the best thing that can happen to a podcaster. Moving on, <laughs> let's dive into it. Here we go, boys, gals, and my non-binary pals. This is the 1916 Jersey Shore Shark Attacks. The New Jersey Shark Attacks of 1916 were a series of shark attacks that occurred along the shore of New Jersey in the United States between July 1st and July 12th of 1916. Four people were killed and one person was wounded as a result of the attacks. The incidents took place in the US during a fatal summer heatwave and a polio outbreak, both of which attracted thousands of people to the beach resorts of the New Jersey shore. Since 1916, academics have argued over which species of sharks was to blame and the total number of animals involved, with the great white shark and the bull shark being among the most commonly mentioned candidates. Personal and national reactions to the killings included a surge of terror that led to shark hunts with the goal of destroying the number of so-called man-eating sharks and defending the economies of New Jersey's beachfront municipalities. Steel nets were installed on the public beaches of resort towns in order to protect beachgoers and swimmers. Before 1916, most of what was known about sharks in the scientific community was based on speculation and assumption. Each theologist were compelled to rethink the commonly held assumptions regarding the capabilities of sharks and the dynamic of shark attacks as a result of these assaults. The assaults that took place on the Jersey Shore almost instantly made their way into popular culture in the US, where they led to sharks being portrayed as dangerous caricatures in editorial cartoons. The First Attack the first major attack took place on Saturday, July 1st, in a tourist town known as Beach Haven, which is located on Long Beach Island, which is located off the shore of New Jersey's southmost tip. Charles Epping Van Sant, a Philadelphia resident who was 28 years old at the time, was spending his vacation at the Angleside Hotel with his family. Before going inside for dinner, Van Sant made the decision to go for a little swim in the ocean with a Chesapeake Bay retriever that was running along the beach. Van Sant's yelling could be heard not long after he entered the water. Bathers thought he was calling out to the dog, but in reality, a shark was viciously attacking Van Sant's legs. 
Alexander Ott, a lifeguard, and Sheridan Taylor, a bystander, dragged Van Sant out of the water while he was bleeding, and according to Ott and Taylor, the shark followed him to the shore as they did. The flesh was torn away from Van Sant's left leg, and at 6.45pm, he bled to death on the manager's desk of the Ingleside Hotel. The beaches around the Jersey Shore remained open for business even after the attack on Van Sant. Sea captains who were approaching the ports of Newark and New York City reported seeing enormous sharks swimming off the coast of Jersey, but these sightings were brushed off as unsubstantiated rumours. After the death at Beach Haven, experts and members of the press were initially hesitant to point the finger of blame at sharks for the passing of Charles Van Sant. According to a source in the New York Times, Van Sant was brutally attacked in the surf by a fish, possibly a shark. However, the State Fish Commissioner of Pennsylvania and former director of the Philadelphia Aquarium, James M. Meehan, asserted the Philadelphia public ledger that the shark had been preying on the dog and had bitten Van Sant by accident. Meehan explicitly played down the danger of sharks presented to humans by saying, Despite the death of Charles Van Sant and the report of two sharks having been caught in the vicinity recently, I do not believe there is any reason why people should hesitate to go in swimming at the beaches for fear of man-eaters. The information in regard to the sharks is indefinite, and I hardly believe that Van Sant was bitten by a man-eater. Van Sant was in the surf playing with a dog, and it may be that a small shark had drifted at high water and was marooned by the tide. Being unable to move quickly and without food, he had come in to bite the dog and snapped at the man in passing. The Second Attack The second major assault by a shark took place on Thursday, July 6, 1916, at the resort town of Spring Lake, which is located in the state of New Jersey and is approximately 72 kilometers north of Beach Haven. Charles Bruder, 27, a Swiss Bell captain at the Essex and Sussex Hotel, was identified as the deceased individual. While Bruder was swimming around 120 meters away from the shore, he was attacked. Bruder was bitten by a shark which ripped off both of his legs and bit him on the belly, turning the water a bright red scarlet color. A lady alerted two lifeguards that a canoe with a red hull had capsized and was drifting just below the surface of the water after hearing screams coming in from the direction of the lake. Chris Anderson and George White, who were both lifeguards, were in a boat when they rowed to Bruder and discovered that he'd been attacked by a shark. They were able to remove him from the sea, but he died of bleeding long before they could get him onto the land. Quote, Women were panic-stricken and collapsed when Bruder's disfigured body was dragged ashore, as reported by the New York Times. Money was donated for Bruder's mother in Switzerland by patrons and employees of the Essex and Sussex Hotel, as well as establishments in the surrounding areas. After this second incident, the response from the media was much more sensational. An article was featured on the front page of a number of prominent newspapers in the United States, including the Boston Herald, the Chicago Sun-Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Washington Post, and the San Francisco Chronicle. The title of the headline that appeared in the New York Times was Shark Kills Bather Off Jersey Beach. As the fear spread, resort owners in New Jersey lost an estimated $200,000, which is $6.2 million in today's money, in tourism res revenue, and the number of people sunbathing dropped by as much as 25% in certain areas. On July 8, 1916, at the American Museum of Natural History, a news conference was held with scientists Frederick Augustus Lucas, John Treadwell Nicholas, and Robert Cushman Murphy serving as panelists. 
In an effort to quell the mounting concern, the three men emphasized how unusual it was to have a third encounter with a shark, despite the fact that they were amazed that sharks had bitten anyone at all. However, Nichols, the lone ichthyologist in the group, advised swimmers to keep a safe distance from the water's edge and to make use of the netted bathing sections that had been built at public beaches following the initial assault. Following these attacks, there was an uptick in the number of shark sightings around the mid-Atlantic Ocean. On July 8th, armed motorboats were patrolling the beach at Spring Creek, pursuing an animal they believed to be a shark. As Asbury Park's Asbury Avenue Beach was closed after lifeguard Benjamin Everingham claimed to have beaten off a 12-foot-long, 4-meter-long shark with an oar, both incidents occurred on the same day. In addition to Bayonne, New Jersey, Rocky Point, New York, Bridgeport, Connecticut, Jacksonville, Florida, and Mobile, Alabama, a columnist from the field and stream captured a sandbar shark in the surf at Beach Haven, New Jersey. Gertrude Hoffman, an actress, said that she'd been attacked by a shark while swimming at the beach at Coney Island shortly after the fatalities had occurred in Matawan. According to the New York Times, Hoffman had the presence of mind to remember that she had read in the Times that a bather may drive away a shark by splashing, and she beat up the water violently. The Third and Fourth Attacks on Wednesday, July 12, there were two more big assaults that took place at Marawan Creek, which is close to the town of Keyport, Marawan, which is situated 48 kilometers north of Spring Lake and inland to Raritan Bay, which is more reminiscent of a town in the Midwest than it is an Atlantic Beach resort. Due to its location, Marawan was not expected to be a spot where sharks and people interacted with one another. Thomas Cottrell, a sea captain who lived in Marawan, reported seeing a shark in the stream that was eight feet long, but the locals didn't believe him. Lester Stilwell, who was 11 years old, was one of a group of local children who was enjoying themselves in the stream at about 2pm. One of the boys had taken his dog along with him, and all three of them ended up going for a swim together. They came upon what seemed to be an old, black, weather-beaten plank, or a weathered wood, at an area that was referred to as Wickoff Dock. When a shark's dorsal fin suddenly appeared in the water, the lads immediately recognized it as such. The shark grabbed Steelwill just as he was about to get out of the creek and pulled him underneath. The lads raced into town for assistance where they were met by numerous adults, one of whom was Watson Stanley Fisher, a local businessman who was 24 years old at the time. As Fisher and the others searched for Stilwell on the creek, they were under the impression that he had experienced a seizure. After seeing the body of the youngster and making an attempt to get it to shore, Fisher was also attacked by the shark in front of the people of the town, and he was subsequently unable to save Stilwell. At around 5.30 in the evening, he was taken to Monmouth Memorial Hospital on Long Branch, with severe injuries to his right thigh, but he was unable to survive the bleeding and passed away. On July 14th, the body of Stilwell was found 46 metres upstream of the Wickoff Dock. Local governments in the state of New Jersey had taken steps to safeguard bathers and the economy from sharks that devour humans. Following the Everingham incident, the only beach that continued to be accessible to the public was the 4th Avenue Beach, located in Asbury Park. This beach was secured by a steel wire mesh fence and patrolled by armed motorboats. Following the attacks on Stilwell, Fisher, and Dunn, people of Marawan placed nets along the banks of the Marawan Creek and set off dynamite in an attempt to capture or kill the shark that was responsible for the assaults. 
Aris B. Henderson, the mayor of Madawan, gave the order to the Madawan Journal to print two wanted posters offering the reward of $100 or $2,500 in 2021 currency to anyone who killed a shark in the creek. In spite of the efforts of the town, no sharks were successfully captured or eliminated in Madawan Creek. The fifth and final assault. Nearly 30 minutes after the deadly assaults on Stillwell and Fisher, the fifth and final victim was New York City resident Joseph Dunn, aged 14, who was assaulted half a mile from the Wickoff Pier. Dunn is the youngest of the five victims. After a fierce encounter with the shark, in which they engaged in a tug of war, Dunn was rescued by his brother and a friend. The shark had bitten off his left leg. Joseph Dunn was brought into St. Peter's University Hospital in New Brunswick, where he received treatment for his bite. On September 15, 1916, he was discharged after recovering from his injuries. A petition was sent to the federal government by resort communities located along the New Jersey shore, requesting assistance from the government in protecting beaches and hunting sharks. The US House of Representatives allocated $5,000, equivalent to $120,000 today, towards the elimination and towards the elimination of the threat posed by sharks in the state of New Jersey, and President Woodrow Wilson called a meeting of his cabinet to consider the fatal shark attacks. William, <laughs> William Gibbs McAdoo, which is a great name, was the Secretary of the Treasury, made the suggestion that the Coast Guard should be activated to police the New Jersey shore and safeguard those who were tanning. The Atlantic Constitution reported on July 14th that armed shark hunters in motorboats patrolled New York and New Jersey coast today, while others lined the beach in concerted efforts to exterminate the man-eaters. This led to shark hunts occurring all along the coast of New York and New Jersey. Governor James Fairman Fielder of New Jersey and many of the municipalities in the state provided rewards to those who successfully hunted sharks. As a direct consequence of the assaults, the East Coast saw the capture of hundreds of sharks in its waters. The hunt for sharks along the East Coast had been called the greatest scale animal hunt in the history of hunting. After the second assault, both experts in the field and members of the general public began offering their explanations to which type of shark was responsible for the attacks of the people in the Jersey Shore, or whether numerous sharks were involved. Lucas and Nichols came up with a hypothesis that the offender was a renegade shark that was moving northward. They were under the impression that it would eventually make its way to the coast of New York City. It was assured that the shark would swim along the south shore of Long Island, and the first deep water inlet would reach would be Jamaica Bay, unless it came through the harbor and went through the north or <laughs> and went through the north through Hell's Gate and Long Island Sound. If it did not do either of those things, it was assumed that it would swim along the south shore of Long Island. According to eyewitness accounts of the deadly shark attacks in Beachhaven, the shark there was around 9 feet long in length. A ship captain who witnessed the incident speculated the creature was a Spanish shark that had been driven out of the Caribbean Sea before the bombs that took place during the Spanish-American War. In the days that followed the assaults, a number of fishermen made claims that they'd successfully caught the New Jersey man-eater. On July 14, a blue shark was brought to the surface near Long Branch, and on July 18, the same Thomas Cottrell who had seen the shark in Matawan Creek claimed to have brought a sandbar shark to the surface with a gill net near the mouth of the creek. Both of these events took place in the vicinity of Long Branch. Michael Schleiser, a taxidermist from Harlem and former lion tamer with Barnum and Bailey, was fishing in Rataran Bay around July 14 when he reeled in a 7 foot 
a seven foot five, 325 pound shark. The catch occurred just a few miles from the entrance of the Matawan Creek. Before Schleiser killed the shark with a broken oar, the shark came dangerously close to sinking his boat. When he cut up the guts of the shark, he pulled out a strange meaty stuff and bones that looked roughly two-thirds of a milk crate and weighed 15 pounds collectively. The shark was determined to be a juvenile great white, and the remains that he consumed were determined to be human. Schleiser stuffed and mounted the shark, then put it on display in the window of a business on Broadway in Manhattan. However, the item was subsequently misplaced. The only image that has been preserved was published in the Bronx Home News. Following the capture of Schleiser's Great White Shark during the summer of 1916 near the Jersey Shore, there were no other reports of attacks by Great White Sharks. Murphy and Lucas referred to the Great White as the Jersey Maneater in their announcement. Skeptical people, on the other hand, propose alternate ideas, such as opinions suggesting that a culprit was not a shark, or even the effect of ongoing events related to World War I. Barrett P. Smith of Sound Beach, New York, located more than 135 miles away on the opposite end of Long Island, stated the following in a letter to the New York Times. After reading a great deal of interest in the description of the fatality that occurred off the coast of Spring Lake, New Jersey, I would like to make a proposal that is somewhat in contrast to the shark notion. Many people, including many scientists, feel it was far more plausible that a sea turtle was the one that attacked, despite the fact that scientists say it is extremely unlikely that a shark was, a shark was the one who attacked. Scientists have spent a significant amount of time at sea and along the coast, and throughout that time, they have had many opportunities to see turtles that were large enough to cause wounds of this type. It is widely believed that Bruder may have awakened one of these animals while it was sleeping on or close to the surface. These creatures have a reputation for being ferocious, and when they approach and when they become agitated, they present an immense risk to anybody who approaches them. In another letter to the New York Times, the author of the letter attributed the presence of sharks in the area to activities of German U-boats that had been operating in the area. These sharks may have consumed human carcasses in the water of the German war zone and followed ships to shore, or possibly followed the Deutschland herself, anticipating the normal toll of drowning men, women, and children, stated the author who wished to remain anonymous. The author draws the conclusion this would explain both their brazen behavior and their desire to, con to consume human flesh. After more than a century has passed, there is no agreement among experts on the inquiry and discoveries made by Murphy and Lucas. Richard G. Fernicola, the author of two studies on the incident, says there are numerous explanations about the New Jersey assaults, but that none of them are definitive. Fernicola's investigations were published in both of his books. In general, a number of researchers, including Thomas Helm, Harold W. McCormack, Thomas B. Allen, William Young, John Campbell Butler, and Michael Capuzzo, concur with Murphy and Douglas. Nevertheless, in 2000, a National Geographic Society published a paper stating that some researchers are of the opinion that the great white shark is probably not to blame for the majority of attacks that have been attributed to the species. These individuals believe that the less well-known bull shark is the true perpetrator behind many of the reported incidents, including the infamous shark attacks that took place in New Jersey in 1916, which may have served as the inspiration for the film Jaws. According to the findings of two marine biologists named Je George A. Lano and Richard Ellis, a bull shark may have been responsible for the attacks that resulted in fatalities along the New Jersey shore. 
Bull sharks are known to enter freshwater rivers and streams after swimming in the ocean, and they have been responsible for attacks on humans in a variety of countries. Lano wrote these words in his book titled Sharks Attacks on Man, which was published in 1975. One of the things that took people by surprise the most about the attacks in the Matawan Creek was how far away they were from the ocean. There are further incidences of well-documented shark-human interactions at Ahuan, Iran, which is 90 miles upriver from the sea. These narratives may be found in other parts of the book. There are sharks in Lake Nicaragua, which is a body of fresh water. In 1944, there was a prize given for the heads of deceased freshwater sharks because they had killed and badly injured lake bathers recently. This information may also be of interest to you. Ellis draws attention to the fact that the Great White is an animal that lives in the ocean, and Schleiss's shark in the picture was taken in a river. To say that finding it swimming in a tidal creek is rare would be an understatement. To suggest that it is even, even feasible would be a stretch. The bull shark, on the other hand, is notorious for venturing into fresh water, in addition to being known for its combative and belligerent disposition. It is true, he says, that the bull shark is not a common species in the waters of New Jersey. However, it does occur more frequently than the great white. An ichthyologist by the name of George H. Burgess speculated in an interview with Michael Capuzzo that the species involved has always been doubtful and will likely continue to generate spirited debate. However, Burgess does not dismiss the possibility of a great white. Because of the location, Matawan Creek, it is indicative or brackish of fresh waters, which is a habitat that bulls visit and whites avoid. The bull receives a significant number of votes. However, our investigation of the local of the location indicates that the stream, its death, and the salinity regime were more similar to a marine embayment, and that smaller great whites definitely might have drifted into the region. These are all things that point to the possibility that the animal was present. Because a great white shark of adequate size that had human remains in its stomach was captured in the area not long after the attacks, and there were no more attacks afterwards, it seems likely that this was the shark that was involved in at least the Madawan killing. The chronicle and geographic order in which the occurrences occurred lends credence to the theory that the same shark was responsible for some of the earlier attacks. The victims of the attacks that took place in 1916 are documented as having been killed by a great white in the International Shark Attack File, the director of which is Burgess. The rising number of people in the water was identified as a contributing element in the attacks. The number of people living in the world is constantly increasing, which in turn has led to an increase in the number of people interested in participating in aquatic leisure. The amount of people that go into the ocean has a significant impact on the total number of shark attacks that occur each year or in a geographical area. However, there is still debate over the possibility that one shark was involved. Based on the data that Lucas and Murphy gave in 1916, a number of scientists, including Victor M. Coppelson and Gene Butler, have concluded that a single shark was to blame for the incident. Richard Fernicola, on the other hand, notes that in 1916 it was a shark year, since fishermen and captains reported seeing hundreds of sharks swimming in the mid-Atlantic region in the United States. Ellis makes the observation that to attempt to make facts as we know them correspond to the rogue shark idea is pushing sensationalism and believability past reasonable boundaries. It is an admission on his part that the evidence is long gone, and we will never really know what if it was one shark or numerous, one species or another was involved. 
In the 2011 episode of Real Story Jaws on the Smithsonian Channel, more research was carried out. The events that transpired are analysed in further detail throughout the documentary from a variety of vantage points. It was demonstrated, for instance, that the Marawan Creek attacks, that a full moon of the lunar cycle which could have coincided with the attacks, would have raised the salinity in the water by more than double digits, just a few hours before high tide. This was demonstrated by the fact that it would have occurred just a few hours before high tide. This would lend credence to the idea that a great white shark was potentially responsible for what happened. Other evidence, such as Joseph Dunn's inquiries, revealed that the sort of bite was more likely made by a bull shark as opposed to a great white shark. This led to some people to conclude that more than one shark was probably involved in the five instances that took place in 1916. Oh boy, that was a long script, my boys. Um, I hope you liked that story. It took a while to research that. Um, yeah, lots of contrasts and uh, comparisons to what happened in um, in uh, 2001, like I said at the top of the episode. You might also be thinking, you know, this is really similar to the story of Jaws. You know, the first attack occurred and the uh, local governments didn't do anything and a couple more attacks happen and they start paying attention. And then at some point, the beaches all just become deserted. Uh, and you're right. And as was mentioned in that story... Um, the 1916 Jersey Shore shark attacks were the inspiration for the book um, that the movie Jaws is based on. Um, one of the, you know, probably the first blockbuster movie is based on these events. So uh, it's not overstating how spectacular this story was um, even a hundred years ago, roughly a hundred years ago. Um, yeah. Very, very fascinating story, and, and the fact that we still, a hundred years later, do not know the answer, and we probably never will know. If you were to ask me, I think I tend to lean towards the theory that it was a great white shark more than a bull shark. Um, if it was, if we're assuming it was one animal, which it seems like it is, the fact that they captured this great white shark near the river and cut its stomach open and it proved to have human uh, remains inside it, and then after that the attack stopped in the area, that to me, it's, it's not... Uh, evidence you know it's it's coincidental potentially but to me that is a good um that's good enough for me to side with the idea that it was a great white shark rather than a bull shark um bull sharks however you know uh we, we all know what a what a great white shark looks like we've all seen the footage of them attacking seals and we've all seen jaws um but bull sharks are underrated animals too. They, they are absolutely terrifying. And the fact that they can go up um, freshwater estuaries and uh, end up in lakes is pretty scary. I live not too far from Lake Macquarie, which is a saltwater lake. It's actually the, the largest saltwater lake in either the Southern Hemisphere or the world. I'm not sure. Um, and we've had bull sharks in there before. We get dolphins in there a lot. Um, but there have been reports of people being bitten by bull sharks in that uh, lake. So we were always very um, reticent to go in there. And I remember once for... Um, my, uh, it must have been year five or year six, um, we went out on a boat and, they, you know, they towed behind like a big uh, rubber, what do you call it, like ring? Like a big rubber um, swimming ring, what, what would you, inner tube, like a really big one. And so a bunch of us kids sat in there and I remember just being really terrified of stopping because it meant that um, the sharks underneath could come and um, pinch my little butt. Uh, but that never happened. And that probably is the uh, beginning of my long long history of uh, self-confidence issues because I feel like, you know, if not even a bull shark wants to pinch my little butt, who's going to do it? Are you going to do it? Are you going to do it, Glenn? 
If your name is Glenn and you just heard that, you're probably freaking out right now. This is a genuine invitation to any Glenn listening to pinch my butt. And I, if this holds up in court, okay? If Glenn comes and pinches my butt and I freak out and I say, no, 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 you can't do that. I didn't give you consent. I'm suing you for sexual assault. And you play this back in a courtroom. I hereby give permission to any Glenn who listens to this episode to pinch my little butt. I welcome it. I demand it. Your Honor, guilty. What are we talking about? Oh yeah, shark attacks. Well, speaking of shark attacks, actually, you know what? Never mind, I take that back. I'm going to make an announcement at the end. Before we go to that, we're going to talk about um, the scratch of the day, which is, of course, one of my favorite... I just hit a thing. One of my favorite segments on the show, um, Scratch of the Day, I look through the news, any animal attacks, we're here to talk about it and read about it. Because that was such a long episode and I don't even know how long that went, my oh my, we are way over time. I'm only going to do one story today, but it's a good one. Um, This story, the headline, this is from the BBC, the headline is, Bison Attacks Woman at Yellowstone National Park. Yellowstone National Park seems to be an epicenter for animal attacks. I love it. My partner actually got me a book uh, a couple months ago called Death at Yellowstone, which I have not had a chance to read yet. I'm sorry, but um, I'm looking forward to cracking that open. And uh, I think there's a couple stories of bear attacks in there. There's also stories of people falling into just like those like uh, hot water lakes. Have you heard that? And just getting completely dissolved. It's not a man-eater story, but maybe we'll talk about it one day. Maybe I'll do a podcast called Weird Deaths, and we can do that. Uh, but anyway, a woman has been attacked uh, by a bison at Yellowstone National Park, and I don't think we've talked about bisons. Luckily, this article, uh, very lovely of them, includes a lot of really nice cursory information about bisons or buffalo, which I'm excited to share with you. So, this is from the BBC. It was reported three days ago, um, and I can see if I can find the writer of this article. I cannot. It is not there. Okay, well, whoever wrote it, good job. Here we go. A visitor to Yellowstone National Park in the U.S. state of Wyoming has become the second person in just three days to be attacked by a wild bison. The 71-year-old woman inadvertently approached the animal as she returned to her car, causing it to charge. Officials say she was taken to hospital where she was treated for non-life-threatening injuries. The attack comes after footage emerged on Tuesday showing another bison at the park charging at and goring a visitor. The incident occurred The incident occurred as the 40-year-old, sorry, the 34-year-old man from the state of Pennsylvania and his family were walking along a boardside near the park's iconic Old Faithful Geyser. Video footage obtained by US networks showed the man hurriedly moving his child out of the bull bison's path before he was thrown in the air. There is video here, so let's uh let's see if we can play that and I'll react to it live. Okay. If you can hear this. A terrifying incident where a man and his son got tossed by a wild bison. Oh, oh my god. Holy shit. Damn. Wow. Okay. So not too bad. <laughs> okay, he survived. He, um, he did a great job. He kept his son out of the way, which uh, the story could have been much more... Uh, uh, horrific if the sun had been killed because he's tiny. That bison, I, I think he got a meter or two off the air then. Um, thankfully, the bison seems to like be in self-defense mode and does not, um, it's not continuing, it's not following up its charges. So that's, that's at least good. Um, moving on, park officials say he was later treated at a nearby hospital in Idaho for an arm injury. 
the 25-year-old woman from Ohio was, a, sorry, a 25-year-old woman from Ohio was also attacked by a bison at the end of May in the first reported attack of the year. Uh, these are happening so frequently. I'm wondering if like May, June, July is, um, is maybe mating season for these animals. It wouldn't surprise me. She was tossed 10 feet, which is three meters into the air. Wow. After coming too close to the animal during a hike in the park, officials say. Bison are extremely aggressive and territorial animals. Yellowstone officials have repeatedly warned that bull bison living in the park and wild are can and will be dangerous when approached. Park officials say bisons, which can travel at speeds of up to 30 miles per hour, which is 48 kilometers per hour, fuck me, that's faster than a school zone in Australia, have injured more people in Yellowstone than any other animal. That's that's also surprising. Wow. In advice to issue, sorry, in advice issued to visitors, park rangers suggest staying at least 23 meters away from any wild bison at all times if coming into contact with the animal is unavoidable, and to turn around and go the other way to avoid interacting with the wild animal in the proximity. Yellowstone is home to the largest collection of bison on public land in the U.S., with about 5,000 of the animals in two major groups. Bison are the largest land-dwelling mammals in North America and can weigh up to 2,000 pounds, which is 900 kilograms. What a great story. That was three stories of bison attacks. Ah, I'm, I'm lucky. I feel so spoiled. Thank you, BBC. And um, I'm sorry. BBC, you should probably post who... Um, who writes your articles, by the way, but I can't give them credit. Anyway, that is um, our scratch of the day. Only doing one story today since we are going uh, so over time with that 1916 Jersey Shore shark attack story. Um, we are just about at the end of our episode today, folks. But before we go, a couple really important um, important announcements, housekeeping things. First thing I want to do is give a really special shout out to a special someone named Dawn, who uh, recently became a crocodile tier patron on our Patreon. Thank you so much, Dawn. I um, massively appreciate it. The idea, the fact that I don't even know who you are. I've never met you. You might not even be from where I'm from, um, but you still are willing to donate your, your time and resources and, and hard-earned money to help me uh, make this show better and better. It, uh, it, it touches my soul and my heart and my butthole a little bit. Not really. Sorry. I take that back. Thank you so much for that. Uh, if you are interested in supporting the show at all, of course, there is a Patreon out there. It's managed on Patreon. As I always say, I don't expect you to do it, but if you want to and you want to throw me a couple bucks, I, I massively appreciate that. Thank you so, so much. Um, okay. Here we are. At the end of the episode, I promised you some special announcements. Are you ready? Are you tucked in? Are you, are you quivering with anticipation? I am. Okay. And these big announcements, by the way, I have already announced on the Patreon. So Dawn has already seen it and she said she thinks it's pretty exciting. Uh, so thanks for that, Dawn. Okay. Big announcement number one. Okay. And I've already mentioned this before on the podcast. Next week is our 25th uh, episode. Um, and we are doing, finally, I've been talking about it forever, the Jim Corbett special, okay? So we are going to be talking all about the man, the myth, the legend, Jim Corbett. We're going to talk about his early life, his, uh, his adventures throughout India and throughout Africa, um, his career as a big cat hunter and as a naturalist and as a uh, nature conservationist. We are going to listen back to previous episodes of Man Eaters. We're going to listen to the Champawat Tiger, the Leopard of Panar, the Leopard of Rudra Prayag, and of course, there'll be a new story, The Bachelor of Proudahar. I think it is. What's the name? Oh, God. The Bachelor of... I can't pronounce it. It takes me a while to learn the um, the names of some of these animals. Where is it? 
The Bachelor. Oh, yes, The Bachelor of Palgar. The Bachelor of Palgar is a, is a brand new story which will be part of this series. And I'm going to release The Bachelor of Palgar um, as a separate story on the Patreon. So if you want to listen to just that as a story, head over to the Patreon for that extra little bit of, of goodness, okay? So that's our next episode. It's going to be a bit of a closing of a, a chapter for Man It Is. Our first 25 episodes, capping it off with, you know, a... a a special episode where we look back at our, our past and cringe at the terrible audio engineering. Okay, now are you ready for our second big announcement? Because I sure am. Following the Jim Corbett special, episode 26 and episode 27 are going to be two new types of episodes of Man Eaters. I'm really excited for this. Um, the first new one, are you ready? The subtitle is Man Eaters Killer Cryptids. I'm going to be starting to do episodes not just based on men eating animals from that, that have existed in the real world, definitely. Um, we're going to talk about cryptids as well. We've covered a lot of animals that are kind of cryptids. We've talked about the uh, the, the Malloway Terra Hyena, of course, Two-Toed Tom last week. Ca you know, characters that are, we, we think we know what they are, but there is no evidence. We're going to speculate further and go down that rabbit hole a little bit more and look at uh, creatures that we we have no evidence of but have made their way into folklore in many different countries throughout the world. So creatures like um, the Mothman from West Virginia, the Chubacabra from the lower part of the United States and Mexico, uh, uh, the Nandi Bear from Africa, the Loch Ness Monster in Scotland, the Yowie in Australia. We might even talk about like the uh, the repeated sightings of a panther in Australia and also the, the, uh, the Tasmanian tiger apparently still existing in places in Australia as well so really excited for that our first episode I believe will be on the Mothman because that's a really kind of creepy story and it actually does involve the death of several people uh, believe it or not so stay tuned for that uh, in a couple of weeks okay and then following that episode a new kind of episode we're doing man-eater movies it's kind of gonna be like a, a movie review slash conversation slash you know we're going to laugh at the movie if it's really bad. I'm basically going to listen to or watch some movies that, uh, you know, feature man-eating animals. Movies like Jaws and Grizzly and Crawl and uh, Snakes on a Plane and what else, what else, what else? You know, like uh, 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 Razorback, which is a really cool Australian one. There are tons of man-eating animal movies and we're going to talk about them. So I will give you a heads up on uh, my Instagram, which is Jimothy Chaps, and also the Man Eaters Instagram, which is Man Eaters Pod. If you would like to know what the upcoming movie is so you can watch it ahead of the episode and we can kind of talk about it together and gab, um, we can totally do that. And you can also send through your opinion in the email and as always you can send through your ideas for new episodes in that email as well the email is in the caption of this podcast wherever you're listening to it um of course don't worry i'm going to still be releasing the regular episodes of man eaters like the first 25 episodes have been like a similar theme and i'm going to of course consistently release those those are still the bread and butter but i just want to spice things up a little bit and and try and have a little bit of fun over the next 25 episodes and uh we'll you know we'll touch base and we'll see how we go from there uh once we get to episode 50 so that is it everybody thank you so much a reminder to you all as always you know like the podcast give it a five stars give it a thumbs up give it a good review on itunes or 
or Google, whatever the fuck you have to do, all the bullshit. Um, I really appreciate it. If you're not following us already on social media, go and do that. Make sure you're subscribed or following on whatever podcast platform you're listening to so that you can be notified when new episodes come out. Uh, Of course, as mentioned, the Patreon, you're welcome to go there, but you don't have to. Uh, You don't have to do anything. Did you know that? You actually don't have to do anything. You could kill yourself. I don't think you should, because if you do that, you can't listen to new episodes of Man Eaters, and also stuff about your family and friends, but mainly that other thing. Uh, oh, what's that? Okay, my solicitor is calling me. Oh, he's texting me, and he says, hey, just a reminder, whatever you do, don't tell people on your podcast to kill themselves. Don't even mention it, because it's not funny, uh, and it's an animal podcast. Why would you be talking about suicide? <sighs> you know, he raises some good points. So I guess don't. There's plenty to live for. Uh, Ice cream is one thing. What else could you live for? Puppies. Do it for the... Oh, my God. I just just remembered about puppies. God, puppies are great. (sighs) Anyway, that's the episode. Uh, See you next time. Jim Corbett next time. All right. I'm going to go Google pictures of puppies. Chesapeake Bay Retriever is going to be the first one. Boom. Tied it back to the story. And if you're not sure how that revolves to the story, you weren't listening. Okay. Bye, everybody. I love you. I love you. Oh, and the sign-off. Uh, yeah. Pay attention out there. Okay? Stay safe. Because as we've learned recently, it's a jungle out there. <laughs> oh, bad. <laughs> <laughs>